welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about Rainer Werner Fassbender, not only because it would be his would have been his 75th birthday today, but also doubly because uh, of the recent passing of the great Herman, one of his most used actors. And it's sort of appropriate, too, to kind of bring her up immediately in a conversation about Fassbender because... As we're going to get into when we talk about uh, some of these movies that we are going to discuss, Fassbender's films uh, thematically are based on cruelty. And Fassbender, I think more than any filmmaker you could probably name, is someone whose personal life and professional life were very uh, connected. And certainly Aram Herrmann, an actress who worked with him from the beginning, is someone who in his personal life suffered a great amount of cruelty, like many people in Fassbender's uh, 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 life and films. Uh, She was a uh, a high school student who was going to get a job as a secretary, but Fassbender had uh, told her that he wanted her to come on the stage with him and to become an actress, something that she was stringently (laughs) against. Um, I'm in fact just going to quote something that Fassbender said about her here. He said about her that um, she's the only actress in spite of herself I've ever known. It wasn't until later that she too tasted blood, which sure enough is what she did going through a personal relationship with Fassbender. They were together for a while. Uh, And then some of the roles that she played, which were reflections of the lives uh, of Fassbender's collaborators and his relationships with them. Um, So it's kind of interesting to kind of bring that up in a thematic sort of way, but even more so, I think, uh, because at the same time that, you know, they had this really horrible (laughs) relationship, what you see on screen, her performances on screen are immaculate, unlike any, you know, unlike anything else in Fassbender, a lot of people talk about the bigger actresses in his films, like Hannah Skygula and Barbara Sakawa, Margaret Cardison and Bridget Mira, and Erm Herman gets left behind quite a bit because she's so often someone in the background, but in a way she's, Oh, especially in a film like uh, The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, she really is the heart of these films, the kind of surprising, unexpected one. So just as a way of introduction, I'm going to say, uh, rest in peace, Erm Herman. Thank you for a wonderful career, although a uh, reluctant one, and one that obviously came out of a lot of hardship. Um, but this is the Pink Spoke Podcast. My name is John Cribbs, and I'm here with Chris Funderberg, and we have a special guest, Mr. Eric Frender, filmmaker and editor. Eric, welcome to the episode. Thanks for having me back on Fassbender Day, no less. Very excited. Happy Fassbender Day to you and Chris. Happy Fassbender Day. Happy Happy Fassbender Day. We're going with that. <laughs> Thank you, John. Thank we you. hadn't planned on it, but uh, <laughs> it just happened. We're gonna get it. We're gonna get it trending. For sure. Let um, that be my worst contribution to the to the show today. <laughs> our um our uh, episode today is going to be structured a little bit like today is a if you are listening to this on May thirty first. 2020 is a shared birthday it is also clint eastwood's 90th birthday and we also did an episode on him and we're going to structure this episode the same way but instead of a double feature this will be a triple feature on fassbender where each of us uh, have picked a fassbender film that we like that means something to us to talk about and we'll go through that we'll look at the movie and just keep it 
keep it pretty simple rather than having it be uh, an in-depth career overview, just sort of use each one of these films as a, as a different jumping off point to, to talk about uh, Fassbender and what we think about him and, and feel about him. And, you know, Eric, before we, we get into it as a guest, you're not on the podcast uh, that, that frequently. Is there anything you wanted to, to say about Fassbender in a general sense at the beginning and before we dig into it? How much like Clint Eastwood he is? Uh, well, he certainly <laughs> didn't. Uh, it's 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 Clint's ninetieth birthday, and it's Fassbender's would have been seventy fifth birthday. He was, um, you know, he obviously died young. I mean, I don't know. Fassbender's somebody that I've always been really into since uh, we got introduced to him. At I got introduced to him at Purchase. Uh, Greg Taylor showed us a lot of Fassbender films in the New German Cinema class. He leaned heavy on Fassbender. And I don't know, I mean, he struck a chord with me. I feel like a lot of people talk about him, but I don't know. You know, the films are off-putting sometimes. They're like thrilling in that way, but they're not like, they're not always designed for pleasure because they're so cruel and about cruelty. Um, I don't know. I don't know why he struck a chord with me. I don't know why I'm so into him, but... uh, It's interesting that you were so immediately into him because when I was at Purchase and Greg was uh, really, really trying to get us into Fassbender, I was like so Werner Herzog at the time that I just didn't like get that guy away from me. Like, I want to go with this crazy guy who's pushing boats up mountains, you know? I want to like go into the Amazon and get like a real adventurous sense. I don't have time for very slow burning melodramas based on Douglas Sirk films, you know? Uh, It wasn't until later I matured into them. Yeah, I still love Herzog. Obviously, I mean, that guy was instrumental in the shaping the way I look at just cinema. But he's also somebody that's so easy to get into when you're younger. It's like uh, like when you're first getting into like rock and roll and you're like, The Doors, Jim Morrison's cool. And then you grow up a little bit and you're like, yeah, he's cool. But actually, like, that's not that sophisticated and he's kind of a jackass. Not that Herzog's a jackass, but it's somebody who's like... I was going to say, that's a very mean comparison. Okay, that's not what I meant. Like, I just mean... who is who is sort of uh, thinks of Herzog as a bit of a charlatan now. It's like, wow, that's... Couldn't you have gone with the Rolling Stones there? <laughs> I just mean that like he's some it's like the things that are cool about him on the surface are easy to get into when you're younger. Yes. I think. Like cuz he's cuz he's got like this myth about him that you know as you get older you're kind of like I don't know like if somebody asked me to be like is like I'm going to the edge of a volcano that might explode. I need you to film it. I might be like no, I don't think that's it. Like, I don't, you know, like just in, in terms of where I'm at in my life right now, that's not how I want to spend Saturday. So, I think a more apt comparison actually would be Godard and Truffaut. Uh, because obviously yeah. when you're younger, you see Godard films and you're like, ah, oh, jump cuts and crazy, you know, yeah. colors. And, and the music. And, and, and so Sam rebellious there. and yeah. sexy. And, you know, you're into that thing. And it's not until later that you realize the deep waters of Truffaut are, you know, something different and something that you can dive into much further. Yeah. And also, and also I'm never quite sure that he fully, that Godard fully understands what he wants to say about Marxism or he, it's more, you know, Marxism exclamation point rather than like, I don't know, but just some of his ideas get, yes. Anyway, I'm yes, like that interview where he, gave a press conference all about how he was going to make a film out of uh, Mao's Little Red Book, about Mao's Little Red Book, that movie that would become La Chinoise. And partway through the, the press conference, he admits he's never read it. That's Godard <laughs> in a nutshell. I'll also say that while Fassbender and Truffaut both died tragically young, 
Godard and Herzog have lasted to become something of a joke. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that they've certainly lasted long enough that like it's I mean, thank God we didn't get the doors and they're like late nineties, here's our single with prodigy era. You know what I mean? <laughs> This does remind me of something I posted somewhere uh, back when I was a little bit more of an active social media user. And I said, um, I think something along the lines of Fassbender would have loved the cure's disintegration. And then Chris, your response was yes, but then we would have had to endure all of Fassbender's eighties movies. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. No. And I mean, and he made enough for a lifetime. It's not like you go through his filmography. It's not like Jean Vigo or something where you're like, ah, you know, what did we miss out? It doesn't feel like we missed out. It feels like we got, all of it especially because the 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 stylistic turn it takes in the last few films if you're not into that you don't feel like oh he was right on the cusp of something it it feels it it, those movies like carol and veronica voss uh which i like more definitely than i used to feel like um feel like he's not headed someplace that i'm personally uh, amazed by in some way so yeah and then that way Fassbender had a rock star sort of lifestyle where he really killed himself making all these films making 40 films within you know a very short amount of time that's why I made the Jim Morrison comparison is it, the, is it the filmmaking that killed him or the cocaine mixed with barbiturates? It's all, it's all interlaced, obviously. <laughs> he obviously did that, to, did that to, to, to make as many films as he could. He was such a workaholic. Um, but he you know, famously said that he wanted to make his films like a house. And I really think you've got a very solid, complete house by the end of it. I agree with you. And yeah. I kind of like the films we picked to talk about today because we've got a little, I mean, we, I don't know, we, we sort of did it on purpose. We also sort of picked films we liked, I think, but we're sort of, there's a little bit of a representation of different, because he does move through modes. He's obviously, he's got pretty good, good sections of his career, uh, it, you know, and I think we've got, I think we've picked a representation from each one. Yeah, I agree with that. And let's, on that note, let's just, let's dig into them. Uh, and I will start it off. Uh, I picked for my part of the triple feature, his film, uh, The Merchant of Four Seasons. Uh, yeah, this is a movie, I'm having a really bad morning this morning. And I, I was sort of asking you guys to let me switch out of this film after I watched it last night. Uh, because this is just such a heavy, heavy film. Um, but I think we, we all agreed that this is, this is one of his very best films and one of his very best to me, um, unadorned films. It comes, I, I mean, you can talk about it, it comes early or late or in the middle of his career. He worked, he worked so fast. This is sort of like mid period, even though it's only three years after he started you know, like it's it's funny how quickly his career develops uh, and how quickly he works through everything. So this, I always uh, think of this as the beginning of mid-period because it's the beginning of uh, like his Douglas Sirk stuff, you know? Yes, and it's also, he also slowed down and made um, one film in this year. He was a famously prolific director. For people that don't know about him, he would make three or four films every single year in his career, uh, basically from 1969 to 1982. And uh, just incredibly prolific. He'd make TV miniseries. He'd work on plays. He'd write uh, other stuff. He'd write essays. He was just working an incredible amount. And Merchant of Four Seasons uh, opens this sort of second phase of his career 
here. And I think it's, you can see it because he slows down just a little bit uh, in making of this movie and doesn't make 800 things in a single year. And it is, it is a bit of a shift in style for him. You know, it gets compared to, to Douglas Sirk a lot, which uh, is both true, but also something uh, I resist. This is not uh, a film like this is not like Todd Haynes doing his Douglas Sirk homage, where it's basically a remake of a Douglas Sirk film, right? Um, and he does not imitate. When people say something is like Cirque, there's a handful of films that they mean that they're talking about, like All That Heaven Allows. Um, they don't mean in a, a sort of more expansive sense of, of Cirque's career necessarily. There's like a few films that they're talking about. This movie does, it's impossible to deny the influence of Cirque on it, but at the same time, it feels like so much its own thing that I sort of, I, I bristle when he gets reduced to being compared to Cirque all the time. It, he's such a distinct singular artist that it does no service to either Cirque or Fassbender to, to make that association as hard as it gets made. Not, not no offense to you, Eric. I, you're just no. saying the thing that's said about it. And, well, I, and is true. And is true. His movies change when he decides to imitate Cirque. On but Cirque. I think what happens is he's not imitating... I think he learned something from Cirque and he he's takes less style from him than people want to give it credit for. And yeah. he, he more like allows himself to, to do this, something like, like with this warmth. Like he allows himself to like have, I have a quote, but I don't want to interrupt your thing. No, no, give me, give me the quote on it. Okay, this is, this is Fassbender on Merchant. The Merchant comes from a period in which I had gotten intensely involved with the melodramas of Douglas Sirk and had learned a couple of things from them. I had figured out that the public likes them and is interested in them, to put it simply. For example, the story with Carl, who plays Anzel in the film, where he spends the night with the wife of the fruit seller and then later comes in again as an employee. Previously, I would not have done that because to me that would have been too much like something in a dream. And suddenly I began trusting myself. Yeah. I feel like it's like, it's, I think, I think it's people lean, critics lean too heavily on, oh, he saw Cirque and then he started making melodramas. And it's more that he just like, let like that that's like a little love triangle that would have played differently in one of the earlier films and now play like it allows itself to both have meaning and to actually just be dramatic i think yes you know? i think that's very fair and i think that that's a great quote um I uh, uh, just to tell the plot of Merchant of Four Seasons, because this is definitely not one of his, um, it's not one you see listed as one of his greats, the way Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, Marriage of Maria Braun, those are like the ones that come up over and over and over and over again as his best films. Uh, this isn't on that list for whatever reason, even though, and I think the reason is that stylistically, it's an incredibly plain film uh that it it looks like ali fear eats the soul which is another one of his most um famous movies and most well-regarded movies uh but this is a, a sort of very plain uh, insistently modest movie and a lot of that is that he's working with very small budgets on these things he's working incredibly quickly um but the story follows a, a guy uh, who, uh, an ordinary guy, I don't know how to describe him, blue collar guy. He's a fruit seller um, who 
brings his cart out to the courtyards of houses of apartment buildings and asks, hollers up if people want fresh pears. And we find out that his background was that uh, he was in love with a, a wealthy young woman who refused to marry him because of his background. And even before that, he was a police officer who lost his job uh, for getting a, a blowjob from a suspect during an interrogation when he's booking a, a young woman in. Uh, she uh, he gets caught um, uh, receiving oral sex from her uh, by another police officer and is fired uh, immediately from his job. He joins the Foreign Legion. And the timing of a lot of this, uh, I find hard to uh, piece together. I'm assuming that the Foreign Legion has to happen before he is a police officer and comes back. Um, but since it's the same actor playing this guy across like 15 years it feels like uh it's it's got a funny kind of like martin short and clifford quality whenever it's flashing back <laughs> in time it's uh is this supposed to be a how young is this young man supposed to be and um and then from there he uh sort of he has a wife that he just doesn't connect with and a daughter a beautiful blonde-haired blue-eyed little girl and he's just not satisfied in his life as a uh as a fruit vendor and he starts to get drunk he becomes increasingly violent with his wife uh we find out that his family is a wealthy respectable family and his mom was perpetually disappointed in him uh his whole life and basically the only person in the entire movie who treats him with any sympathy is his sister played by hana shagula um and that is basically the only person in this whole film. He has a heart attack at one point when, when sort of on a, uh, on a bender. And after he comes out of the heart attack, he can't do the job anymore. He's not allowed to lift anything nor take a single drink because it can cause him to die. So they have to hire uh, somebody to work for them. Uh, Hans and his wife. Uh, his wife is played by the great Erm Herman, who we were discussing before. She plays Ermgard. Um, and like a lot of, this is one of those films where a lot of the characters, uh, Fassbender, just gives them either the actors' names, like Hans Her uh, Hirschmuller plays Hans, and Erm Hermgard plays Ermgard, or Erm Herman plays Ermgard, and Hanna Shagula plays Anna, and, and, and Kurt, Kurt. Roblob plays Kurt, you know? And, um, but they hire an employee who turns out to be a, uh, a young man, or a, a full man, that guy's a full-on man isn't he <laughs> who man has, is a man yeah he's who an had, adult male yes who had slept with with uh Ermgard and sort of one of her more unhappy moments in the marriage and in fact their tryst had been interrupted by the daughter and she had in a very affecting scene gone and cried hiding her face in the drapes and crying and now he's been hired uh, this man that they had the one night stand that Erm had the one night stand with has been hired to be the employee and he's a great employee, but Erm starts, um, uh, uh, scheming to have him fired. She wants him fired. She doesn't like having him in the house. She's nervous. So uh, he has him uh, lie and, and cheat the boss and, and get fired from that. And then uh, another man, is hired. Uh, uh, Hans runs into an old friend from the Foreign Legion who's now working as a later and hires him. And in this time, as all of this is going on, this is all like plot 
minutia, right, of it. What's happening is, is Hans is just becoming more and more unhappy. There's depression that overtakes him. There's a fundamental unhappiness that overtakes him over the course of the film. And it manifests itself in different ways, like him being physically abusive to Erm or being... uh, totally distant and disinterested in his daughter or things like that. And then by the end of the film, he doesn't do much except sit in the truck while they're working, sort of looking unhappy. And then when he gets home, he stares out the window looking unhappy until at the end of the movie, uh, even though he's been, been warned about this, he does, it looks like 15 shots at the end of the film and dies right there at the drinking table with, with Erm just sort of watching him, uh, unable to stop him from destroying himself. Um, and it is along with Fassbender's fear of fear. I think it's the most affecting portrayal of depression and unhappiness in cinema. It certainly feels the most accurate to me when I've had major depressive episodes, what they feel like. Um, and it's, and it's like all Fassbender. It is both political and, uh, and sort of fundamentally radically left wing, but lets no one off the hook and advances no agenda and position. Uh, as far as the characters are concerned. You don't watch a movie and go... (laughs) The funny thing about a movie from Fassbender like Merchant of Four Seasons is you don't watch it and go, that wife-beating, alcoholic, drunk asshole is the villain who's terrible to his daughter. That's not the reaction they're supposed to provoke in the audience uh, in any way. And in fact, he's, he's constantly tweaking cruelties as well, that if you think somebody is a victim in a Fassbender film, one of his running themes is that victims love to become victimizers, that more than anything, people are capable of twisting their position uh, towards other ends. And that people that you think are, are guilty are not as guilty as you think, and people that you think are innocent are, are not as innocent as you think, runs throughout Fassbender's movies. And I think that's because one of his central themes that he's deeply interested in is how people contribute to and create their own unhappiness while placed against the irony of the world is so out of our control. So those are, that's the ironic structure that he works with in a lot of movie is that the world is this giant, chaotic, unjust, cruel, unfair thing. And then within that system, we also make ourselves unhappy and ruin our own lives. And it's incredibly pessimistic of course but like all art what redeems it is the beauty and sympathy and grace to it Fassbender doesn't want the audience to see anybody as villains or heroes because he wants their sense of sympathy to be more complex than that he wants you to have sympathy for everybody in this film I think even the wealthy woman who won't marry Hans uh, because he's poor she's not necessarily seen as a as a cruel character I think the only person who's sort of villainish in this movie is Hans's mother who when he returns from the foreign legion says like ah it's always the 
shit ones that come back. You know, it's always the the crappy ones that survive the wars and return from the Foreign Legion. You know, where's your buddy who died? That was a good guy. Um, but even she's, that, she's but even brutal, that, man. she's brutal, but she's right. He is a fuck up. You know what I mean? And he is wasting his life. There, there's this level on which she's creating that reality in him. But it's also, that's also sort of true about it in some way. Um, that, that he is sort of a, a loser who's wandering around and who, you know, um, is, has a nice job as a police officer but loses it by doing something vile. And... Uh, it's a, it's a it's a pattern of fucking up. Yes, she exists. She is the villain to Fassbender because she has none of the sympathy for humanity that he does as a filmmaker. That's why she feels like a villain in the movie is that her crime is an inability to feel sympathy for the wretched and the fuck-ups and the unhappy and the unjustly put upon and the victimized. And I think that that's why he separates her out from everything else. But I think he's also smart enough to understand that, um, that, or maybe not smart enough, the movie certainly doesn't lean into it. It's hard to argue against her. You know, and I think that that's part of the theme, too, is that if you try to argue, no, Hans is a great guy that life has been really unfair to just listen to the plot I related. That doesn't sound that way at all. You know, when when Anna, Hannah Shagula's character, says uh, to to Hans's daughter, you know, people haven't always been nice to your father, um, to your daddy. It's. You know, she seems, it almost seems like a mystical, crazy statement in the context. But, of, but yeah. Hannah, Hannah's yeah. character is the one who's been privy to, because they were their brother and sister. So she's yes. seen what the mother's done. The mother exactly. is the one who's never provided that next level of humanity. Because even when Ermgard is introduced, yes. right, at the beginning of the movie, it seems that the movie is going to be a portrait of a man who's beaten down by the women around him. We're introduced to the mother early, and then Ermgard's following him around and telling him what to do and sort of being critical. And then- <laughs> But she... again, but Eric, righteously critical, don't go get drunk, come home and have dinner. <laughs> Like, are you selling your fruit? Yeah, or and don't, are you see, and don't secretly go up to, no, I understand, but she's still, at first, but then, yes. but she's then provided as the movie goes on, like at first it seems that way, and yes. then you realize that, oh, she's, like the movie has an intense amount of sympathy for her as well. The mother yes. is the one who has never provided another level. Yes. She has no, it's all surface manipulation yes condescension. purely evil matriarch yes very much in this movie and i think that a lot of people have that relationship to their parents too uh certainly some i i don't know enough about fassbender's personal life to speculate but uh certainly uh seems like he had some problems with his parents specifically his mom uh there there is no more it's an interesting uh comparison to satin's broughton where the parents are sort of these pushed over little mole people that that uh that the main character in that just sort of who's an artist runs roughshod over his little middle class parents who are like look like little moles or something and he sees and he goes after those parents from the opposite angle of not keeping their son in line enough. Um, 
Just to speak too, to Eric's uh, comment about the women kind of ganging up on Hans yeah. in this movie. Um, the reason I think it's so dispiriting, uh, even for a Fassbender movie, uh, is this sense that nothing's going to get better, you know, yes. in life. That even though you might tell yourself, I've got myself together, you know, I'm going, uh, I'm actually going to make an effort and I'm going to kind of move forward with more determination than I did before. Yeah. Ultimately, it's not going to work out simply because you know, as we move forward, things just degenerate. And with Hans specifically, his heart condition emasculates him where he has to keep hiring more people to kind of fill in the roles that he needs to, to be there for first as with his fruit cart. And then also, you know, making love to his wife. Yeah. It already, um, his already shaky sense of identity is further undermined. Right. He's already, you know, lost his identity as a, you know, a promising career as a policeman. And now he's walking around with the fruit cart and he can't even do that anymore. I mean, the literal sort of, uh, you know, walking up the, the, uh, the hill, you know, that, that, that with that cart, it's something he can't even do. It's, yeah. it's a power that's beyond him at some point. Yeah, and I think that that's sort of the you can't even thing. push the rock up the hill. I guess exactly right. But with with depression, like my one of the things I think is interesting about this is it's not the movie's not one downward slope. It's actually a sine curve. Like at one point, he comes back. Like his relationship with Ermgard seems to be fixed a little bit. Like once they hire the person at first and they get the second cart or the stand, he seems happy for that one scene. And I feel that there's like this moment where it's like, Oh, is he getting his shit together? And then the depression starts to sink in again. Right. And that to me is like an accurate depiction of how bouts of depression work in my life, where sometimes they don't appear to like, they come out of, they come in up no like so like his depression seems like it, it's partially circumstantial like he's he's not quite satisfied he has a broken heart from the love of his life he's got things aren't exactly the way he wanted them but the the last wave of it almost comes out of it comes at a point where like like they have the whole scene where they're discussing how successful his business is he's turned into quite an entrepreneur yes. his life seems to be organized in a way where it's manageable and that's when the depression becomes the worst yes is that you you can get your shit together and it, things can seem to get better, but it does not affect you in a positive way. Exactly. Because also the value system for Fassbender that's being promoted is of course like having a small business and making your, you know, uh, a contemptuous mom happy is not going to make you happy at all. <laughs> you know, like, of course, this is not going to make anybody happier. It's a ludicrous value system to say, again, to see it reflected in fear of fear, where stable middle class existence is not going to make anyone happy. You know, it's, it's a ludicrous idea that if you, you know, are able to put the, the, the nice new coffee makers in your, your house and that sort of thing, that you'll feel better. Um, and that you can fill up that that identity void and sense of self with uh, unconvincing uh, accoutrements and sort of surface level things. We see too in this movie the constant theme in Fassbender of blaming the wrong person. When he gets the blowjob from the prostitute uh, and is caught, he slaps her as if it's her fault that he's now yes. going to lose his job. Exactly. And same thing when he throws the chair at Erm Herman in the bar, when he's a drunken idiot, um, is that he's, this movie positions him as somebody who is a, a victimizer uh, without question, you know, and sort of pulls that 
apart repeatedly uh, uh, about how bad behaviors are an expression of self-loathing and self-annihilation, willing to explore that without um, without with sympathy for bad people, for people whose behaviors are very hard to justify if you write them down on paper and look at it. And it's still remarkable. He's still one of those filmmakers that to me feels so essential for that reason, even beyond somebody like Cirque. I think that's one of the insights he gets from melodrama is that melodrama, especially Cirque and melodrama, is about people trapped in impossible relationships, people trapped in sort of nightmare of their own making, that the things that should make them happy don't make them happy, that they're chasing after other things and chasing after after problems. And a lot of Serkian melodramas don't necessarily have uh, a villain to them, that this is the bad guy that they've got to get over. It's, it's, in a, it's in a much more vague despair than that. And in Fassbender's films, the most villainous, the most cruel person is always the least punished, like the mother in this movie. Yes, I agree with you, with you, John, that the that the mother is the one who's sort of most unpunished in this movie. But I'll tell you, it's funny as you're as you're saying that I'm thinking about like I identify so strongly with this movie with every character in this movie uh, obviously except for the mother who who Fassbender gives you no ability to identify with uh, that I I have a reaction of like well you can't go blaming your mother for this stuff you know just my own personal projection (laughs) onto it is like look look sometimes people have terrible mothers you know, we've all been there. You can't blame your mom. Take, take some responsibility. <laughs> Not even take some responsibility, but just like, look, that's an unsolvable problem. You just got to get over it. <laughs> well, often these these characters, like the worst of the, like the most cruel characters, uh, Fassbender has a non-judgmental sort of stance on them in a like, you don't have to tell it like it is kind of characters uh, are going to be, I guess you would call these the Gunter Kaufman characters if you know anything about his personal life. Um, but they they are being truthful, like they're telling the truth in, in a very harsh and crippling way, in ways that make characters do things that destroy them ultimately. Yes. Um, but that they're not saying anything that's not true, as you pointed out a few times. You know, Hans is his own worst enemy. He's making all of the bad decisions all by himself, and it's nobody's. Yes. At the end of the day, it's nobody's fault. It's not his mother's fault. It's you know, it's nobody's fault but his own. Yes. And also you're right that Fassbender, one thing that he does is that the the truth never sets anybody free. The truth is a weapon of cruelty. That's the entire idea of Chinese roulette is if you are bluntly honest with people, you are just intending to destroy them. Uh, And I think that that's definitely a running theme. Just so this episode does not run a million hours, does not run, you know, Berlin Alexander Platt's length. Why don't we, uh, if do either of you guys have any more you want to say about Merchant of the Four Seasons and then we can move on to Eric's pick for the second, uh, the double feature? Very quickly, I, and be, I, uh, I watched it. I woke up at 4.30 this morning to squeeze in some extra Fassbender as preparation and I watched Merchant this morning, which is both a wonderful and terrible way to start your day. And yeah. then when, when it was over, I was watching the Criterion Blu-ray and there's a 10-minute interview with Irm Herman and she's so humble and so modest yeah. and so, you know, I mean, it's, I think it's clear knowing what I know about Fassbender and power dynamics and manipulation and as critical as he is of all that stuff, how much he participates in it himself. And yeah. just, I don't know. She just, 
she just seems lovely. And even though a lot of her the experience was probably painful, she also seemed grateful to have been involved. And she seems happy that like later in life when people talk about her, it's in relation to these, you know, these movies she made and specifically the back-to-back Merchant of Four Seasons and um, Bitter Tears of Petra Von Kant. I cannot yeah. believe those two movies were made back-to-back, by the way. They're, it's, it's crazy. It's just, it's just one of those things. Anyway, I don't know. She just seemed lovely and I just wanted to throw that out there. Well, it's just a complicated sort of thing. I mean, when you think about her character in Petra Von Kant specifically, who seems like the most... Um, abused character and seems like you know a character whose whole life is based on submission and being the lowest you know person in the room at the end it becomes her movie her final action when we realize that she's had the power all along because this submission is what she wanted from petra all along uh and her getting up and leaving is the most it's the only statement in that movie that makes any difference you know? Yeah, yeah, but it's so powerfully cruel too. That too, it's yeah. just that that the people are just waiting to express their cruelty as well. Someone mm-hmm. on uh, someone on Twitter, because obviously she just passed away, so film Twitter's uh, you know a flutter with Erm Herman, and someone just said something about her ability to own a movie with the look. And I was thinking about the scene when she's manipulated. Um, the one employee in Merchant of Four Seasons into she basically wants him to get caught having cheated so she or cheating them financially so she encourages him to do it and then she just turns and she's looking at Hans and it really is just this power like she just it's almost this dead-eyed stare because she doesn't want anyone else to know what's going on but we as the audience know so we can sort of see the wheels yeah. moving like it's it's for for somebody who didn't claim who claimed to be an amateur actor. I mean, I don't know if... Well, the signature image of that movie is her with the tears running down her face at the Absolutely. end after, after he's died. And I think that there's something about her that she doesn't look like an actress. Hannah Shagula, as great of an actress as she is, looks like an she's, actress. She's a movie star. She's she somebody has, who yeah. you see people go, point a camera at her. And Erm Herman is the kind of person that people don't point their cameras at naturally, you know? Especially, she goes a long way towards... Um, you know, to frame it in terms of like male gaze or something, that's that's not what she attracts from a camera lens, you know? Well, what's interesting is yeah. those non-actors in that way can sometimes play awkwardly. What's yes. cool about her is that she looks like the person that you don't want to point a camera at, but then once you point the camera at her, there's this tremendous She's inner so life compelling. that she can control. Yeah. No, exactly. It's, and yeah. She's it compelling and luminous and interesting. She's got the charisma, you know, but in, in sort of a very regular looking face. Well, it speaks, I think, to the instincts of Fassbender. Very human he, she could be so compelling that he would put her on screen. And, and also to the, again, the complexity that, this is a little bit of biography that I didn't know about until recently. She actually had a child. Um, she became pregnant by a married man and Fassbender offered to adopt the child and give the child his name. And she was like, are you fucking kidding me? You're Fassbender. Why would I want my child to be involved with you at all? Um, which, uh, uh, became like a he was like i've done with you like i don't want to work with you i don't want to see you i don't want to know you anymore he was that insulted um and then right before she gave birth he came to his senses and was desperate to reconnect with her and in fact called her coincidentally turned out to be she was at the hospital giving birth that's when he called her and said i'm so sorry 
I want to be there. I'm there for you. I want you in my life again. Just the complexities of Fassbender, I think, are in yeah. that story. Right well, it's there. funny that he thought their life was going to be the end of this movie where the, the old war buddy, uh, Erm Herman's character is just like, you're good with the kid. I like you. Let's, let's have a marriage sort of as a domestic agreement more than anything about an emotional one. It's weird that Fassbender was like, Oh, you remember that movie we made? Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. Like he has such insight in the movie itself. And then <laughs> completely tone deaf in real life when he's making the same yeah, decisions. Yeah, well, he's, he's, I think that he uh, honestly tries to contend with his most negative qualities. I don't think you can make movies this thoughtful and this insightful about the difficulties of the human heart and the darkest parts of the human soul without living it. I think him being a bad person is connected to the movies being great movies. I think that that's, that's one of the ironies of art and separating art from the artist is that you watch these movies and of course that's who made them. They have a deeper insight and feeling and sympathy to them. Uh, it's it's just impossible to imagine them coming out of a, a good-hearted, decent person. You know, like the difference between a Jonathan Demi movie and a Fassbender movie. Just meet <laughs> either of the human beings. You know what I mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I agree. Okay, Eric. Yeah. Second so, part, double feature. Backing up, backing up. I uh, I decided that we should talk about Love is Colder Than Death, Liebe Kulter Alstertod. Um, which One of the best titles of all time. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Also the title of a not great biography about him that's a little bit sensationalistic, but for that reason, also fun to read. Um, but uh, it's his first feature, and I love it. And it's one of those movies that I love because it's kind of a mess in some ways, but then there's amazing stuff in it. He uh, he basically made a crime movie that's not really a crime movie, but he tried to, you know, latch some of these ideas that he wanted to start working on in his film work into a crime structure. And the movie opens in like this... I guess like the hideout of the syndicates and it's really just like one white wall that they occasionally move different desks in front of. Like they get a lot of mileage out of having like the whole movie is shot incredibly bright in front of these white walls. It's like he's trying to do something you don't normally do, especially in a crime movie where you think crime movie, you think noir, you think shadows, you think nighttime movies like mostly at day it's everything's lit without shadows um, but he, uh, I don't know. It's, it's like, it's an arch film. It's, it's very clearly in debt to Godard, the way the later ones are in debt to Cirque. This is trying to do like a crime film. That's a deconstruction of crime films, but it's also its own representation of a hip new thing as well. You know, well, sort of like taking down, a few. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, what I wrote down along those lines, thinking about it, just having watched it last night was like breathless is Godard trying to make his own movie, but like filtered through a love of like American crime movies. And then what does that mix like? This, Love is Colder Than Death, is like Fassbender doing Breathless. It's like not actually a reference to American crime movies. It's a reference to a deconstruction 
So it's like a reference on top of a reference. So it becomes that much more like deconstructed somehow where to the point of like, you know, but there, I mean, but there's, a, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, they're both like, you know, to me, it's him doing band of outsiders as much as breathless that the both band of outsiders and, and love is colder than death feel more beholden to genre trappings than breathless, which is just kind of has that sort of at the beginning at the end, but then is just a guy hanging around for most of the movie. Yeah. So take us, take us through the rest of the plot of it just so everybody can. Well, uh, basically Fassbender and um, Uli Lommel are played these two gangsters who are being recruited for the syndicate or possibly Uli Lommel already works for the syndicate. Um, that's sort of revealed later. And, um, and then they're sort of being recruited and then he's allowed to leave and he goes back to Munich and he invites Uli Lommel to come uh, basically stay with him if he's ever in town. And then when he gets up there, Fassbender as Franz, his life is kind of like, he's, he's like a low grade pimp to his sometime girlfriend, Hannah Shagula. And Uli Lommel comes and stays with them and they develop this kind of weird triangulated relationship. And then they plan a heist and the heist goes wrong. And that's basically the plot that the movie's hanging on. It's yeah. the plot of Band of Outsiders, in fact. <laughs> Do they go grocery shopping? They, well, <laughs> at, one, at one point, uh, uh, Franz is like, the, the, the relationship's allowed to get more complicated because Franz is picked up by the cops for a previous crime that they're investigating him for. And so he's sort of like taken out of the apartment for a while. And then the other two sort of deepen their relationship, Uli Lomo and, and Hannah Shagula. But he's also like, it never feels like a betrayal. Like he's kind of okay with it because he's sort of like likes this guy. I don't like, and there's, there's a homoerotic element to his relationship with, um, with Uli Lomo. Um, apparently the, uh, cause the, you know, he had been working with the anti-theater and um, building up to this, and this was their first feature, and everybody that's in his theater group has a bit part in it. Uh, Kurt Robb pops up, Erm Herman's in it, uh, you know, just everybody's got like this one little scene, but Uli Lommel was not part of that crew. He was somebody that Fassbender had met while doing an acting work and someone uh, taking a gig and somebody acting in somebody else's movie. And everybody was, I guess, furious that like, nobody, like, nobody had the screen time that they wanted. And, uh, but that sounds like a very Fassbender story too. Just like play, you know, sort of this combination of loyalty and disloyalty when it suits his needs. But, yeah, um, and just like a hot house intensity behind the scenes. Yeah, like oh, you're Especially all pissed. Everything, everything will be better now because you're all angry at me. Let's shoot this scene now while you hate me. But um, yeah, and. Um, they do there's there's a couple of amazing long tracking shots in this which when i i think this was this is what i remembered of it most um having seen it you know a long time ago and then revisiting it was what struck me were these long takes there's one where uli Lamo and hannah go grocery shopping and there's this music playing and they're just sort of walking through the store and you're just you're just watching them exist and then that sets up this later shot where now I can't remember if it comes earlier or later, but there's another tracking shot, which is the one I remember most, where it's just you're watching them walk down this long road after they've just sort of committed this assassination. And then at first it just seems like the entire, it's like a two minute tracking shot where we're tracking backwards and they're walking towards us and they're sort of just walking and smoking cigarettes. And then at one point, Fassbender does a little skip, you know, and then 
And then off in the distance in the background, we see uh, this motorcycle start turning the corner onto the road and coming towards the camera. And then you realize that this long tracking shot, while giving us this opportunity to just observe them in the middle of this movie, is also then turns into like this suspense moment when we realize that that's a police officer that's approaching them and that they're going to have to deal with this. So even though this is his first film, there's this like level of sophistication in terms of like how to time things, how to block things, how to frame things that's always there. But then at the same time, there's all this sloppiness to it like at one point Uli Lamel has a has a a close-up where he lights a cigarette and then he's blowing out his Zippo lighter but he doesn't quite blow it out and it doesn't look very slick or smooth (laughs) at all and they sort of just left it there and I'm like it's like his charisma is sort of making it still seem like he's cool like Bogart or like um Belmondo but not really because he didn't really pull off the thing he was trying to do it's a weird moment I don't know but um yeah, and then I, it's just, it's a movie that builds towards a towards a failed heist. It, it, and you're right, it is like Band of Outsiders. And it's, but it's, I, I don't know. It's it's one of those prototype first films, you know, where you yeah. see all the things that are going to come out of him later. In- well, let's say, yeah. It's an interesting movie too for how much it's a path he he doesn't go down, that he abandons this kind of movie that's clearly referential to to you know to the new wave but also spaghetti westerns and and sort of all the changes that are happening in non-new wave gangster films at the same time those sort of like Jean-Pierre Melville uh Claude Sautet you know Jose Giovanni type gangster movies uh that are happening in the preceding decade it's beholden to what's going on in the world in a way that um that it feels like, you know, when you go to the Picasso Museum and there's a bunch of things that aren't cubist there, but are still it's... interesting in their own way, it feels like that in some way, where it's probably not that radical. Uh, he still films and blocks things in a way that's very similar to this movie, and I think his... And it's all it's all theatrical, like he's still, yes. like, he's still used to the... the yeah. yeah. I've, got a, I've got another quote here. I did a little research, guys, and I have some quotes. This one's uh, about uh, this film up through the first nine films, up to Beware of a Holy Horror. Um, Much in the first nine full-length films, up to Beware of a Holy Horror, satisfied me quite simply because the films expressed my situation at that time very concretely. If you see them together, it becomes clear that they were made by someone who put them put into them his sensibility, his aggressiveness, and his fear. Nonetheless, I don't quite count these first nine movies. They are too elitist and too private, and they actually were made only for us and for our friends. It's a really interesting way to think about, like, you know, Kotzelmacher and Gods of the Plague and all of these early ones that are still, like, have one foot in the anti-theater and it's him learning how to get more sophisticated and try to do things, but they're also, you know, they were, they were almost not made for public consumption, you know? Yes. I'd, I'd never heard that quote before, and I have to say, I really agree with it. As much as there are interesting things in these early films and uh, moments that really obviously predict where he would go, I just don't revisit them nearly as much as I do his 70s films and his yeah. 80s films just because it does seem like he's kind of getting something out of his system a little bit. They're like um, It's almost like it was his film school or something. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? They're like his student movies, kind of. Well, he famously took the money for the film school he didn't get accepted to and made his first three features. 
um, which would have been Love is Colder Than Death, Katzelmacher, and Gods of the Plague, is, is the apocryphal story. You guys are, are much more versed in, in the, the real-life stories. Love is Colder Than Death was partially funded. Uh, we, I think that story is partially true, but it was also he had a, a donation from a patron of the theater who basically gave him money, told him if the film recoups any money, he can pay her back but didn't expect to receive any money back. So it was, yeah. I think it was a combination of things. And they are, they're very much, I think that that's a good, it's funny because when those movies get recommended to Fassbender novices, I always want to be like, oh no, don't tell somebody don't, to watch, uh, you know. Don't, don't do it chronological, yeah. Yeah, like don't do that. You're going to make them hate Fassbender. But it is more interesting to me exactly what he's saying. When I go back and watch them now, it's purely, it feels like I want to read his diary a little bit more than yeah. anything. You know what I mean? It's like, I want to, those movies are interesting in the context of other stuff, but I wouldn't pick a single one. And I think Love is Colder Than Death is the best of all of them. Maybe The American Soldier. Ameri but the end of The American Soldier puts it over the top because that's a moment that's, to me, it's, I've never seen anything like that that song playing with like the body and the brother yeah. reacted to, I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to spoil it, but the, the, basically the last shot of the movie is transcendentally weird and cinematically interesting in a way yeah. that makes it, it makes that movie have a value beyond just this interesting period. But in it's other, also him trying to reach feature length by extending a shot impossibly long. <laughs> Well, that's one of the, like the, all the tracking shots in Love is Colder Than Death, like the one that I described with the cop feels yeah. like it's, it serves a purpose uh, cinematically and even suspense is built into it later. There's an earlier one, even before the grocery store one, where it's just this tracking shot down a nighttime Munich street and it's nothing. It feels like it's literally too, I mean, I think it's interesting. I'll watch a tracking shot down any street for two minutes, yeah. but I don't know. That's me. But it really feels like it's just trying to fill out the runtime. Yes. Like it, the early films feel a little bit like he heard this is what good filmmaking is. So he's going to try that like long tracking shots. Yeah. Like uh, especially in yeah. those three gangster movies, especially in Love is Colder Than Death, Gods of the Plague, and American Soldier. To me, what the big shift in Merchant of Four Seasons is, is how confident he is with simple, unadorned shots yeah. that just to not worry about what is happening in the frame just film the actors film the emotions film the scenes and you can build off of that you know what's interesting about that though is that that's his last movie i i might have this wrong but i'm pretty sure that's the last movie because petra came next and that's the first movie he shot with Ballhouse, and that's when yeah. he starts doing not rip-off cinematic techniques, but really starting to break ground stylistically with his yes. blocking and his framing. And he ends up, he had such success with Merchant of Four Seasons, the actors split the Federal Film Award or whatever for performance that year. Yeah. And then he immediately changes, ta I mean, that's obviously partially a function of him working with Michael Ballhouse, but yes. he, he really took a turn immediately after that, despite it being... Well, I think he figures out what he's doing with yeah. Merchant of Four Seasons. And, and, you know, some people say, Beware of a Holy Horror is the first real Fassbender movie. That's one that, that leaves me completely cold. I've heard Fassbender say it was his favorite of his movies, too. Or heard that quote repeated. I have no it's idea. It's the most nakedly self-referential. Yeah. Or like obviously self-referential. And self, that's one nakedly, but obviously. right before Beware of a Holy Horror. But I think that, 
I think that Merchant of Four Seasons, to me, Beware of a Holy Whore fits in perfectly with that group of first nine. Yes. Merchant of Four Seasons feels like, here's the change. And exactly. then he immediately starts building on top of it. I mean, he does World on a Wire in, right after those two. Maybe not right after, but... You no, know, it's, it's, right in, in it's right in there. And that movie is incredibly uh, aesthetically sophisticated uh, and, and looks great and all of that. It, and, that movie's packed. There's just so much, it's overwhelming. Yeah. What, I mean, it's partially, it's not just the camera, it's the set design as well, but it's, I just, that movie's like dazzling. It's almost overwhelming. But then he goes back and again, from there on out, it's all masterpieces because he goes back and he does Ali and Martha, which are simple in the way Merchant yes. of Four Seasons is simple. And he does those right after again. So he's, he's just, he hits it. Once he hits his stride, it's incredible. It's incredible what he does. Uh, one last thing uh, I want to say about Love is Colder Than Death and that I'm happy to move on, but uh, it uh, was not well received, but the story, and I wasn't there, could be apocryphal, but he <laughs> took stage at the film festival with his hands clasped above his head to resounding booze. So he's, <laughs> but he just like, he comes out like he just won the prize fight and he's just, you know, like this is a victory. And I, that, that is... That is one of the most hospender things I can ever imagine. Just to, you know, go fuck yourself. You guys don't know what's coming. Like, yeah, absolutely. His absolutely. confidence, even is, when unearned, is amazing. Yes, and that one is, the, Love is Colder and Death is definitely worth watching and worth seeing. It's an interesting film. I'd say of all the early ones, like, if you're going to pick one, you know, that or American Soldier, but it's a fascinating movie. And it's and it's still very Fassbender-ish, as much as I'm drawing a hard distinction in his time period. I don't think unless I had like the list of them sitting in front of me, what I would, that I'd be able to clearly draw distinctions and say, yes, that one is from that era. This one is from another era necessarily. I go to bat for Katzelmacher too, only because the characters in that one are really reflective of the kind of characters we meet in his later films. Yeah, and it's very sensitive. It's the attitude of that movie is the attitude of Merchant of Four Seasons. Yeah. And John, let's complete this triple feature and you take us into what is your selection? Uh, my pick, so moving a little bit later into his career is In a Year with 13 Moons or In a Year of 13 Moons. Uh, this film, I think, is notable for being a culmination of a lot of the things Fassbender had been uh, doing with his career and his films up to that point, and also being singular and unlike anything he'd done in a lot of ways. It's a really remarkable film. It's really unlike any film. I think it's a really special movie. Yeah. Um, but if we are talking in terms of where it falls in his career, because Richard Linklater, who's a big fan of the film, kind of declares it, the last of the second phase, uh, the films we've been talking about with Merchant of Four Seasons and Ali and the uh, Fat Fox and his friends, because it has that same intimacy and it kind of follows the same sort of characters. And it's before he, right before he moved into uh, his bigger budgeted films, uh, you know, uh, period films and films that specifically evoked old Hollywood. Um, but for me, it's really this and the third generation, which is the film that came immediately after are sort of more of a transition between that phase and the bigger phase, the more amb ambitious one, yeah. especially because this one is, uh, this and, and, and third generation are the only ones where Fassbender is credited as the DP. 
Uh, he's also in this one credited as the editor uh, and the art director. I mean, he's all over this film and it is a artistic masterpiece in terms of its aesthetic, in terms of its framing and its lighting. He clearly took a lot of cues from Michael Bauhaus while they were working together because this film is absolutely gorgeous from one scene to another. It's in fact so gorgeous that its unbearable sadness is almost undermined by the gorgeousness of it. You know, it's almost a celebration of how beautiful life can be while also being this uh, just a horribly depressing story. It's set in 1978, which according to the opening titles is a year of 13 moons when people are who are prone to depression suffer far more intensely where they're most likely to suffer a horrible tragedy. Uh, my parents suffered a tragedy that year because I was born in 1978. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> specifically uh, the, um, the character who is suffering in this film is Elvira, a transsexual individual who has just been uh, dumped by uh, her live-in boyfriend. And we kind of immediately understand that he was this damaged person who thrived in their relationship, who became more confident and gained power from Elvira's attentions from her love of him, he has become a better person and his reward to her from that is to, to ditch her, to, you know, to, to pack up and leave and leaving her extremely lonely. That's what this whole film is, is this character who is so alone, just trying to connect with other people. And the way that she kind of decides to do it in this film is sort of reinvestigate her past, kind of see how she got to where she is now how her relationships with other people have affected who she is and her situation. And we, as the audience, of course, learn how she got where she is by doing this. We find out that she went to Casablanca to have a sex change operation. It's described as without any real reason. Uh, But we find out later that the reason is because she fell in love with this powerful investment banker slash gangster who goes around in a tennis outfit played by the great uh, Godfrey John. Uh, Ryan, Reinhold himself, the star of uh, Eight Hours to Not Make a Day and other great uh, Fassbender films, um, who made a suggest who made a suggestion when he, uh, Elvira uh, went back when she was a man told him he loved her and she and he said that would be oh well, I guess that would be okay if you were a woman, which of course is a completely not serious statement, but it inspired her to go and to change herself, and that's what a lot of the, this movie is is. Uh, it's a film about the impossibility of ever being the person that other people want us to be or how impossible it is to change yourself to the perceptions of other people. How to live up to romantic ideals, how to live up to sexual ideals. Yeah. Yeah, How Elvira has taken this ridiculous suggestion and actually gone and completely changed her life. Um, And that when she's at her lowest point later on in the film, uh, she decides, you know, she cuts her hair and she puts on man's clothes and she tries to go back to the way it was. And she can't, she can't become uh, the, the husband and father uh, that she, that she thought she could be because she was never fitted in that role. You know, she had a uh, child and became divorced, but that was never the role that was made for her. And she can't go back. She can't go forward. And it becomes this completely desperate attempt by her to just find a place in this world. There are, a number of incredibly striking scenes in this film. There's a scene 
famously said at a, uh, an abattoir where we see graphic uh, representation of animals being slaughtered, uh, which is undermined by her voiceover where she's talking about how for her, uh, this is not a brutal thing that for her death gives meaning to the existence of these animals because they know that they are now going to become sustenance for the human race. Um, but this very graphic portrayal of the slaughterhouse uh, later comes up uh, in dialogue because we find out that the gangster that she was in love with used to run a whorehouse and that he ran the whorehouse the way that a concentration camp where he was interned as a boy was run. So we have these three very specific institutes, a concentration camp, a whorehouse, and a slaughterhouse. And Fassbender in this movie wants to make it clear that he thinks they're all the same thing, that they're all these... And, and uh, not as total condemnation. <laughs> right, right. The, the Fassbender touch. <laughs> exactly. That, they're, that, that these institutions are bringing these bodies through it. They're changing these bodies that they're transforming into something else. And that it's obviously a very negative way of people being changed specifically to benefit someone else, right? Either a body is being exterminated uh, on the commands of this army or a prostitute, you know, changes herself to please a client and then uh, animals are being prepared for the consumption of human beings. And <laughs> you're right, it is this very cynical, but sort of beautiful idea of society of like, that's just the way things are. There's an amazing scene at an orphanage where a nun played by Fassbender's uh, mother, the actress uh, Lilo uh, Pempeet, has this long monologue where uh, one of her, one of the great quotes that she says is that nobody ruins his own life. It's the order man creates for himself. That's his downfall. And that just sort of sums up what this movie is about that. Again, it's Fassbender's characters coming to terms with the fact that they've sort of made their own decisions, that they've kind of set up this order for themselves, that it's not Gottfried John's fault that you know elvira decided to go and and completely change her life and become this different person it's elvira's idea that by changing herself she's adhering to the ideals that he's put in front of her yes she's society in she's general. a victim of injustice and the source of her own unhappiness absolutely um and and again, again fastbender's cynical worldview is put right up on screen in a long scene where um elvira's friend red zora is watching television and there's uh, scenes from the atrocities of the Augusto um, uh, Pinochet regime in Chile. And we're talking about the internment, torture and execution of thousands of citizens, which then cuts to an interview of Fassbender being interviewed about how he makes his movies. So again, a very self-reflective sort of idea of cruelty that's just inherent in the world and in the, the work of Fassbender that, you know, society is just something that's never going to be fair, that there's just not really a sense of justice and that his characters have their downfall when they realize nothing that they do matters, that nothing is going to get better, that nothing that they can change about themselves is going to change the way that society sees them. Um, it's an incredibly, incredibly dispiriting idea. But again, j just the, the, the dialogue of this film and the way that it's shot a uh, character talking about a dream of walking among the tombstones that are marked not with the years of the life of the people who were buried, but the dates in which they had a true friend, <laughs> you know, yeah. is just a beautiful sentiment. That's also so achingly depressing. 
Um, Elvira, I think, also exists, and I should mention, is wonderfully played by Volker Spangler, who is uh, very different here than uh, he was in Sotten's Broughton, uh, but is an amazing, very tender performance. The existence of Elvira seems to offend everybody in this film. Just the idea that she's there, that she's existing, yeah. other than uh, other than with Zora, the compassion towards her is completely non-existent you know yes. either she's there in the background hearing about her own history and her own life being narrated as if she's not even there as if she's someone who existed a long time ago is uh is just aching to hear these kind of things um but it's also a film that has that kind of harks back to his early uh to his early films in a lot of ways there's a bizarre dance scene set to the martin lewis film you've never you're never too young Yes. Uh, involving the gangsters that comes out of nowhere but seems a lot like the Charleston in, in, Char- in Band of Outsiders, that kind of playfulness. The Madison, the Madison in uh, uh, Band of Outsiders. It's that, got that same kind of playfulness. Yes, uh, it's we an also extremely kind of realize... bizarre late film moment too that's sort of hard to interpret other than he's, I, to me that scene always feels like he's so in control of tone now that he knows uh that leavening the tone with absurdity will give greater impact to the stuff around it. That if it's not just uninterrupted miserabilism, that sort of this weird joy of life invades and it becomes almost grotesque, but it's also fun. You know, (laughs) that there's, there's this strange thing where like, there's constantly like light and joy and fun that just pops up in places, even when it's grotesque, you know, in some ways it's a statement about like a, it makes the the heavy stuff feel heavier, but it also makes uh, light stuff feel uh, insane in some way. <laughs> that that to be that to live in this world as though you can be happy is crazy. Yeah, well, in, it's also in a year st- of thir- oh, I'm sorry. In no a year of thirteen moons is one of those pieces of art. It's like uh, it's bleak and it's depressing, but it's it's like Leonard Cohen's famous blue raincoat. Like the technique, it's such a. It, it, it's such a thrilling artistic statement that it makes it like, like there's, I'm, I always enjoy it on this level where like, well, this is really pleasing to me and thrilling in a way. It's so thrilling. Like the, yeah. The, it's no, thrilling like the subject the and the experience are like, they're almost it, like an opposite because you're like amazed at his ability to channel this. But then at the same time, like what the movie is about is like, it's bleak, man. It's like it's like a harrowing experience. But then you leave it kind of like. Ex- I, 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 the last time I saw this, I left it. I, I saw it at uh, Lincoln Center during that last big retro they did, and I left exhilarated, even though it's like one of the most depressing movies I've ever seen. Yes, and that moment in particular, the impromptu musical number across the gangsters, in which Godfrey John like acts like a baby at one point. It's a very strange musical number. Um, it, like that's such an artistic gesture of like he's totally in control and he knows how about this flavor right here and it'll just work you know what i mean it's just like it's like an athlete taking crazy shots because they're you know because they're on fire you know what i mean and it just has that feeling too and that's exhilarating to see somebody do so many daring feats in one movie to touch such live wire subjects and to not touch them according to orthodoxy, but still approach them with sympathy and to have it be in head credibly emotionally heavy and to have it be funny at times and to have it be graphic and vile and interesting and about history and all of that and nail it. It, it is exhilarating. It's a movie that's exhilarating even as it tears your heart out. 
it also suggests that, I mean, that, that scene that's so expertly inserted into this other, you know, otherwise serious moment that this character, uh, Godfrey John plays Anton Sates, who again is, you know, a concentration camp survivor, uh, who we've just heard from an employee who he fired because he found out the employee has cancer and he doesn't want any sick people near him who works in a building where a man comes in and kills himself, hangs himself. And um, an employee says, oh, yeah, that happens all the time. You always get people come in here and kill themselves in one of the empty parts of the building. Has just sequestered himself almost like the the fear bunker. You know, like he's got his like command officers here with him. And they've got this weird gangster play thing going on where you see like uh, guys, you know, having shootouts in front of the building. You don't know if it's real. You don't know what the hell's going on. Um, And then can just jump into this goofy musical number because it, there are people in the world who respond to trauma and respond to the horrible injustice of the world by completely regressing into this goofiness, you know, that they can just pretend it doesn't happen because he's going to play act as a child at a party who can't get his way while his uh, business associates are stomping up and down the office while this Martin and Lewis musical is playing. It's a beautifully absurd moment. And one of the things we didn't talk about, this just reminds me of talking about the the concentration camp survivor and parents and the role of parents in the Fassbender movies uh, where where Elvira's uh, an orphan, right? In this film? Yes. Well, Uh, yes, Elvira's mother, we learned in the long monologue at the orphanage, uh, gave, gave her up. And when uh, adoptive parents, loving adoptive parents uh, came and wanted to to take her, the nun went to the mother who turned out uh, was now back with her previous husband and had three kids. Elvira was obviously the result of an extramarital affair. She doesn't want to tell the husband. And because they need consent of both the, the husband and the wife for Elvira to be adopted, they can't let her be adopted. Yes. Oh God, this movie is so heartbreaking. But the um, <laughs> the the parents, uh, Fassbender's movies are a lot about the the program of new German cinema of which he was a part. These filmmakers from that that era, uh, Herzog aside, a lot of these movies are about con- young people contending with the fact that their parents were the Nazis, that their parents were Nazi Germany, and you see that running throughout these movies. That this is not. Two generations ago, this is the German version of baby boomers looking back at their parents who were not the greatest generation, but were Nazis and trying to come to terms with that and what the hell you're supposed to do with the fact that your moms and dads and your, the things that are supposed to be the most important uh, relationships in your life if not were directly involved, allowed it to happen and participated the way any citizen of a country participates in the wrongs done by that nation. And that hangs over these films a lot in a very general way that the previous generation has a a fundamental immorality to it, right? But by transferring that immorality onto parents, Fassbender somehow finds sympathy for it or understands that you love your mom and dad, even if they were Nazis, 
You know what I mean? And that's the power they have over you is that you love them and they're important to you even when they're irredeemably awful. And he sees that in a lot of relationships where people have an incredible power over you even when they're irredeemably bad. That a lot of what love is is exactly as explicated in this movie is trying to be something for somebody who is bad for you. You know, that this thing that is gives your life meaning and purpose and fills up your heart somehow in a way that's completely mysterious that you're not in control of is frequently an incredibly destructive force. And the person in this movie who's bad for Elvira, of course, is Anton Sates. Um, she goes back to him, you know, with the idea that maybe since, you know, when she originally came back from Casablanca, he rejected her. He laughed at her that she had had yeah. this operation. Uh, he, she thinks that now that some time has passed, she goes back to him. Maybe he won't reject her. Maybe that they can get something going. He is the, he is the cruel character that won't be punished. And he is the Fassbender character 100%. Yes. Um, the biographical background of this is that it's a response to uh, the suicide of Fassbender's uh, lover uh, who the Elvira character is meant to portray, you know, because at the end, spoiler, you know, she does commit suicide. Um, and the idea that, you know, Anton Sates has just locked himself in with these guys, one of them being Gutra Kaufman, uh, is just hanging out, just being weird and acting up. It's like a thing of Fassbender saying, yeah, that's just me. I'm just goofing around, not doing anything important. I'm not a good person. Um, another biographical thing that's worth pointing out is that, uh, the prostitute uh, Zor is played by Ingrid Caven, who is Fassbender's, the one person that Fassbender ever married. Uh, and the night of their wedding, she was locked out of his apartment while he made love with Gunter Kaufman. And then at the end of this film, uh, Elvira is locked out of her own apartment while Gottfried John makes love to Ingrid Caven. <laughs> so he's got all these really can you can you imagine directing that? Can you imagine being the guy who's like, here's the plan? Imagine pick one of your ex-girlfriends, picture her in your mind. Now imagine directing her in that scene. Exactly. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Um, but that's what I mean too when I say that you can't untie who he was from what he put on screen, not just in the biographical elements, but you have to be furiously self-destructive and destructive to be willing to go over that art artistic precipice, you know, to sort of run into that brick wall as hard as you can, you know, those kind of brick walls that I think. But that I think, I think the thing that separates him in this regard is the self, like he is so smart and he has what I think was like a radical and ahead of its time sense of himself and of like the hum human nature in a way where he's it's not learned from books it's learned from his own perspective and his own experience to know that you're a bad person but then to understand the ways in which you can be a bad person and then to be able to synthesize that into drama or into an artistic experience i mean there's plenty of egomaniacal asshole directors the you know what i mean like yeah, cinema yeah, yeah, history yeah. is full of them but they don't all have the self-awareness that leads to like the kind of ins i mean they have lots of other things that make lots of other cool movies but they don't always yeah. reveal what fassbender revealed about humanity i think yes 
No, I agree with that 100%. I don't mean to say egomania makes for good movies. I mean to say you can't make these movies without having been Fassbender. I don't think it's possible. And, and that also might the sympathies. like a tautology, but it's true. And the sympathies too in these films are come from that same place. One of the most amazing scenes, the most beautifully shot scene, I think, uh, is right after uh, Elvira has visited uh, the apartment of the man who interviewed her for a magazine. Um looking for help, but they really don't, don't appreciate, you know, what she's looking for. And she leaves It then cuts to the inside where his old Barth is uh, sitting and she's nude and she's in this beautiful, gorgeous light. And she's listening to a tape recording of this interview and kind of understanding Elvira in a weird way, in a way that she didn't when she was literally right in front of her doorstep, you know, yeah. asking for help. And he comes in and listens silently and they, they say, let's go find her. She's in trouble. Um, is a really beautiful moment of understanding and sympathy that you uh, don't really associate with his films too much, but it's this really wonderful moment uh, that he, that is as beautifully realized in this film as the cruelty is as profoundly as the, as the cruelty is realized. So this is just a film that has lots of layers, lots of things going on in a deceptively, (laughs) deceptively uh, intimate uh, story of this uh, person, the final days in the life of this person, but um, and I and I would say too, it's not a good one to start on for Fassbender. I would say you know you should definitely come to this one later on because it really becomes even richer with the other films that you see yeah. and kind of when but you that's understand. That's what I always feel about all of his movies is people are like, where to start? And I'm like, all of his movies reflect and refract off of each other even more than other directors. That's normal for directors. But for him, it's hard for me to separate out any pieces. You know, it's like, there's, there's like 12 to 15 that are masterpieces. Uh, where you start is by watching all 12 to 15 of them. That's, yeah. that's what I feel like. With Not it. in one day, though. Uh, you know, if only because Alexander Platz, you can't watch in one day and then watch we, Chris, I didn't want this uh, Fassbender thing to go by without, uh, without mentioning that that is still one of my favorite experiences in the cinema is when we got to go see, over two days, all of Berlin and Alexander Platz at MoMA during that screening, yeah, the where theater. there was also a monsoon, so yes. that over the course of... Over the course of the 48 hours, the men's room in the basement of the MoMA movie theater just slowly got destroyed from everyone soaking wet. And then it was just, I don't know, over, like it felt like we destroyed that place. Yeah, somehow, without, it, that no one was room came poorly. to look like Fassbender's soul. Exactly. <laughs> no, it was it was truly disgusting. It was fun, and it's and it really was a monsoon. It was like two inch deep water on the sidewalk, so everybody in this place, their shoes were just uh, drenched. And it's you know it's a rare opportunity to be able to see Berlin Alexander Platz in a theater. It's completely sold out, uh, and so everybody went. But it was it was genuinely just a, a morass of of wet soaking wet stuff umbrellas everybody's bags were wet yeah. everybody's shoes were wet Coats. And then, yeah yeah just it's and just a mess and it was wonderful my first uh fassbender theatrical experience was at the uh, repertory theater that you used to program at chris and i got to watch uh ali fear eats the soul with no less than richard gear in the audience <laughs> or was yeah. he introducing it no no he was just there he just came yeah. to see it 
he was in it. He would just show up to a lot of things and just be like hanging around. Seemed like a good guy. Weirdly, also his his bet noir, Deborah Winger, would also just show up to things there as well. Um, yeah, I had good Fassbender experiences at that theater. Good ones. Um, no, thanks for having me on. I love Fassbender. I love coming on and just talking movies with you guys and shooting the shit. This was fun. It's hard to pick just one Fassbender, obviously, because his work I mean, yeah, is so... I, interconnected i didn't i I think i self-consciously tried to pick something because i knew what you guys were doing so i was like oh i'll do an early one and then we can sort of represent his whole career it's not that love is colder than death is my favorite fassbender i mean i don't have i like yeah we didn't like we we were were just saying like like, favorites i think this was supposed to be three interesting movies to talk and that's the thing with him is that like i don't like it's not like i like this that and the other it's like i like fassbender i like the bad ones i like the weird ones i like the masterpiece (laughs) like you just you you either you're into the whole thing it's you got to take all of it or none of it i feel like with this guy have have all three of us seen them all uh is there anything missing from your yeah i i I have not i have not seen them all i'm still i've still probably only seen 75 percent of them but i've seen i think i've seen all the i've seen all the big ones and then a lot of them i know better i own a bunch of them so some of them i know better than others i still never seen martha get on martha post haste that movie is yeah, Martha's nuts. one of the one of the best. I'm going through the list now and being like, oh, maybe I haven't. What is you know? Maybe I have Chris, seen them all. Was, Chris, what was the one that you and I saw? Um, wait, was that? Oh, Fear I haven't. Fear? I haven't seen all of Germany in Autumn. I thought you and I watched Fear of Fear, didn't we? We I, did. No, I'm just watching. remembering Fear of Fear is the one that we went at the Lincoln Retro. I just saw. We did just see that. I've only seen Fassbender's section in Germany in autumn. I didn't watch the whole thing of that. But now that I'm going through the list, I think I'm, I think I'm Foss- uh, up there. I think Fassbender's I- section in Germany in autumn is the one Fassbender thing that I haven't seen since Greg showed it to us in school, and I don't know how to track it down. And I want to see it again so badly. That's oh. where he's had has the conversation with his mother, right, and yeah. talking about um, yes, the, about right. the uh, the terrorists, yeah, about Bader Meinhof and everything yeah. that's going on. It's but like his lover is there too, and their apartments painted black. Am I remembering this correctly? You are remembering it perfectly. It's, and it's I, very, I remember it being. Very it's like my mean <laughs> yeah but i want to see it again really badly and i don't know how to find it he, so. it's you also get like uncut fastbender because it's like him screaming at his mom too at times like you know and his mom's like some regular mean, lady his mom's not some intellectual it's like no it it's seems like mean, it's but like it also seems you, performative yes it's like it's like he filmed him going home for thanksgiving dinner and berating his maga uncle is what yes. it feels like in a lot of ways. <laughs> and there's value in that. <laughs> it's, it's certainly fascinating. It's certainly, it's certainly fascinating. Uh, the, I haven't seen like a bird on a wire going through this. I have seen the Mel Gibson bird on a wire. I was going to say, I've seen bird on a wire. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, those are two different things? <laughs> and Rio, Rio das Muertes, I haven't seen either. Oh, that one is the one he famously disowned. Uh, I believe that's why I haven't seen it, but I don't know anything yeah. about I've never Fassbender. Seen what do I know about Fassbender? What? Is Jailbait any good? Uh, that's a weird one. Yeah, it's okay. It's it's fairly early on in the, like, he's figuring it out part of it. I, I would say... Jailbait is the one that feels like he did it for the paycheck. It's it's strange. He's weirdly dis- detached from it. It reminds of me of the, um, the Boone Well movie. I can't think of the title of it now. It reminds me of of the young one, and it's uh, has a similar like 
sexual politics. It's him a little bit out of his, his normal zone. It's not one of the better ones. Uh, it's, it's sort of most notable for being eh, off. <laughs> a lot to see if you're a novice to, to Fassbender, but uh, there's really no wrong place no wrong place to start. Yeah, if, go with the big ones that you've heard of. Go with you go with Petra von Kant. Uh, go with Fox and his friends. Uh, Maria Braun. And then move on from there. Ali is a good one to start with. Ali is a great one to start with. Ali or I think Merchants, Merchants, any of the the Petra Merchants and Ali are those middle masterpieces that you can sort of branch out from. They give a context to everything and then you can move later into Maria Braun and some of the bigger budget ones and then you can start dipping backward into the weird early ones. I don't know. That makes sense to me. Yeah. I also think if you want, we recommended a lot of the melodramas. If you want like him going wild, third generation you can start with. If you want like him like taking it up a notch, I think that that's an easy one to get into and that its politics are um, more overt and less subtle. So you can see what he's trying to do fairly clearly in that one. I can tell you that I've tried to take, uh, I've tried to introduce Fassbender to two different people and one I lent them Ali and this is, you know, somebody who's, you know, into theater, into interesting film, and it didn't take. And then another guy I brought to uh, see any year of 13 Moons, and he had never seen a Fassbender before. And I don't think Fassbender took for him that way either. So apparently those two <laughs> are not the best first ones. Well, I don't, in a year of I've tried twice, and I have not yeah. successfully gotten anybody hooked. So I don't know. That's L- funny. I can't imagine getting somebody into Fassbender myself. You know, <laughs> it's like I really have an attitude of like, yeah, he's great. If you can't see that, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, if you're into it, call me. I'll talk to you about it for five hours. But if you, I'm not going to force this on yeah, anybody. I've like, tried twice like, and it's not working. You got to come to Fassbender. He doesn't yeah. come to you, okay? That's yeah. not his not his shtick. Um, Eric, thank you for uh, coming on. This was a lot. Thanks of- so much, guys. This was great. Thanks, Eric. Um, so yeah, so you can check out this episode as you, after this episode, you've obviously checked it out already. Uh, you can check out our Clint Eastwood uh, episode where Chris and I each pick a Clint Eastwood movie that we enjoy uh, to celebrate the big man's 90th birthday and hopefully the other films that he's going to make in the future. But um, in the meantime, check out uh, the Fassbender oeuvre. Happy birthday, Fassbender, RIP Aaron Herman. Thank you for all the great flicks.